Welcome to Orphans No More, a media extension of Justice for Orphans, a ministry dedicated to rally the church for the cause of the fatherless, inspiring, educating, and equipping believers to care for vulnerable children, and supporting those who have heard and heeded the call of James 127. Here's your host, Sandra Flack. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful, mercy triumphs over judgment. That is James 2, verse 13. Welcome to Orphans No More, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children in crisis through adoption, foster care, and kinship care. I am your host, Sandra Flack. Thank you for joining me today. I love getting emails from our listeners. Some of you uh, have been reaching out and sharing what this podcast means to you and how you're encouraged by it. Some of you email in questions uh, that you have, and um, I personally respond to every email that we receive, uh, and sometimes we end up scheduling a call to connect through Zoom or through a cell phone call. Uh, so I invite you to please reach out if you have a question, uh, if you'd like to schedule a call to connect. Uh, maybe you'd like to share your story on the show at some point, and uh, usually after I have a conversation uh, with a listener, uh, if I feel that their story is a good fit, you know, we invite them on as a guest, always looking for good guests because this is a weekly podcast, always wanting uh, good guests who will inspire and educate our other listeners. So feel free to reach out to me by email at sandraflackjfo at gmail.com or you can go to our ministry website, justicefororphansny.org and reach out to us that way. So I have had an intense week with a particular teenage boy and I am so looking forward to chatting with today's guest whom I've already learned so much from. Suzanne Emery has a master's in leadership of nursing and is a family nurse practitioner. She is certified as a facilitator of the FACETS neurobehavioral model and is a FACETS program director. Suzanne lived in Costa Rica for 20 years serving families and children at risk. She worked as resident nurse at a children's home and then a supervisor of health for a large child care organization for 15 years helping care for children and families. She is bilingual in English and Spanish. Apart from her work as an F. NP at the Good News Community Health Center. She is a full-time missionary with United World Mission. Suzanne is the founder and lead facilitator for a project started in 2013 called Created to be Free, Hope for Families Affected by Alcohol. She leads workshops, provides consulting services, and facilitates family support groups all in the area of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders using FACET's brain-based approach. She is a single mother of two wonderful young men. The younger has FASD. She is originally from Portland, and Portland, Oregon, and is now residing there. So please welcome my FACET's facilitator, Suzanne Emery. Hey, Suzanne. Hi, Sandra. I am thrilled to have you on this podcast. I've already learned so much from you as a facilitator. Uh, you're the facilitator uh, of the FACETS uh, model, and you were the facilitator for the six-week training for parents and professionals that I participated in last spring. I've talked about that on this show uh, previously. Uh, you also did the three-week three uh, bridges uh, bridging uh, training. So I'm excited for my listeners to get to know you. Um, you've got a very interesting bio. I already read that through and introduced our guest to you, but I'd like to start out with what led you to become an adoptive mom? I know you were a missionary over there in Costa Rica. So how did that come about? Yeah, well, um, from early on in my life, I had a deep love for children, and um, I never thought I would consider being a mom without being married, but um, as I 
um, worked in Costa Rica with children at risk. I was the um, nursing supervisor for a large childcare organization in San Jose, Costa Rica. And I started becoming um, kind of respite care, especially for children that um, for one reason or another, their parents um, didn't pick them up from one of our daycare centers. I sometimes would take children home with me for the evening, like emergency situations. And I realized that um, I didn't want to take them back the next day. <laughs> and so my my boss um, just started talking to me and saying, you know, Suzanne, I think you'd be a really good mom. And I said, yeah, but I'm not married. And she said, you know, look at look at it this way. There's so many children in this world that will never have a mom or a dad. Don't you think it'd be better that they have a mom than no parent? And I thought, hmm, that's a good point. And anyway, it's a long story, but God just kept working in my heart and made it very clear that I should at least start that process. And I just told him all along the way, please slam the door in my face if this is not what you have, because I knew I was choosing a difficult path. Um, but one thing led to another and um, God gave me two wonderful little boys. Oh, I love that. Love that story. Um, so you are an FASD neurodiversity expert. I consider you an expert. So at what point in that journey did you learn about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder? Yeah. So I adopted my older son first. He was almost six. And I knew, like I just said, that it wasn't going to be an easy path um, adopting a little bit older child. Um, but he was very capable of working through a lot of the things that came up. And it that first year with him went pretty much um, the way I had imagined. And then a year later, I adopted his little brother. And um, all the wonderful things I knew about working with children at risk and that had experienced trauma um, didn't work with him. And in fact, um, made things worse. And um, I always tell people I thought I was a really good person till I started parenting my younger son. And I just scared me like all the things I could feel and say and do. And I knew that I wasn't understanding something. And so um, I started, I knew that their mother had had issues with alcohol and being a nurse, I started questioning whether that had something to do with um, my younger son's um, behaviors. And so from there, it was another long process, but I eventually, um, he was diagnosed at the University of Washington Medical Center at their um, their um, center where they, they see children um, prenatally exposed to alcohol. And that was confirmed that he was on the, the fetal alcohol spectrum. And so at that point, how did you get training resources? How did you learn how to parent him knowing that he had an FASD? Right. So even before um, he was diagnosed, I was starting to do my own research because I lived in Costa Rica and nobody seemed to really know anything about um, alcohol and um, its effects on the developing fetus and especially what that means like in real life for parenting children. And so um, I actually found um, Diane Malbin, um, who is the author and creator of the Neural Behavioral Model. She happens to live in the town of Portland, Oregon, where I grew up. And so um, one of my times up in the States, I um, asked if I could come see her. And I will never forget, she lived in a little houseboat um, on um, Southie Island in Portland, Oregon. And my mom and I, she invited us to her houseboat and she came out with this little red cap and invited us in and sat us down with a cup of tea and asked me what was the most frustrating thing about parenting my son Edwin. And she drew this simple little drawing of the brain um, that develops, you know, without the, the alcohol and then what can happen when alcohol is a part of the developing um, fetus. And that simple little drawing, just something clicked in my brain and 
Um, it wasn't like everything changed right there, but that was the beginning of understanding that um, I needed to understand my son Edwin's behaviors differently and respond differently um, for anything to change. Cause all the wonderful things I knew were not working at all. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I can relate totally to that. Um, so you, you you got to meet Diane Malbin. That's that is a huge honor. At, when did you decide to become a facets uh, facilitator to help other families? Right. So after that first encounter with Diane, I knew that there were three day trainings in Portland. So um, I I actually did three of those. Um, and the more I listened, um, I just realized, wow, you know, I'm not the only one that needs this. There's got, at that point, I was still living in Costa Rica. I thought Edwin can't be the only child in Costa Rica on the fetal alcohol spectrum. This is like a huge need. Um, and so um, it was, um, I can't remember the exact year, I think it was 2012, 2013, that Diane um had her the first training of facilitators year-long training and i jumped on it even though i couldn't be in person i had to do the whole thing but we didn't have zoom then on phone on a phone call wow listening. um but i just i um i think it you know god really was using all of my experiences with edwin to really um bring me to a whole new place in ministry and realizing there was such a need for this education and support for um, for people that are parenting or living with somebody with fetal alcohol or any other invisible brain-based condition. Yeah, well, I'm grateful for Zoom because next week I begin my year-long facilitator training and I can't wait, but I cannot imagine doing it over the phone. So it was painful. Um, that is amazing. I'm sure. I'm sure. But I'm grateful that you did it because I've learned so much from you. Um, so for our listeners who might not know um, or understand, what does neurobehavioral model mean? Would you define that for us? Right. So the facets neurobehavioral model is a whole um, different understanding of behavior. It really links behavior with brain. So understanding, and I, I always say this, especially in the Christian community, we tend to look at behaviors through a moral lens, um, you know, good and bad, sin. Um, and that's just kind of a normal way that a lot of us see, um, mm -hmm. especially what we would call kind of bad behavior, right? And then we usually use kind of consequences, positive and negative and um, behavior modification kind of things. Um, and so the neurobehavioral model, um, it asks the question, a bigger question, why? Where is this behavior coming from? Um, because it's often more, right, than just a decision. Um, sure, there's lots of people in this world that decide what they're going to do and, but, um, we know the way that alcohol affects the brain, it changes the way the brain develops and works and functions. And so many of the behaviors that um, somebody that was prenatally exposed to alcohol have are a result of a brain that works differently. So the neurobehavioral model asks the question, where is this behavior coming from? Does the brain have anything to do with it? And then when we make that link, of course, um, we are then eventually, as we learn this, going to respond differently because it doesn't matter, as many of us know as parents, how many things you take away, how many consequences you give, how many rewards, the behavior can't change if we're trying to change, really, an invisible brain-based condition. It, the, the person can't do whatever it is that we're wanting them to do. So then it's a whole different way of, um, of of approaching behaviors that we might call bad or inappropriate. And we actually might have the same result eventually, but we go a different path. So we focus on the person's strengths and abilities and talents and the way they learn. And we, instead of trying to change the person, we really change both ourselves. Sometimes it's our own expectations um, of what a person can do. And we focus more on the environment around the person to create a good fit 
between what the person can do and um, what our expectations are of that person. And um, the results are, are often very surprising and um, help the person either complete or, or behave in it, you know, a different way because they're actually settled and who they are, um, or we end, are, end up changing. And so our expectation becomes different and we kind of get to the same place that we had hoped to using our other strategies, but in a totally different um, approach. Oh, that, I mean, that resonates so much with me because I, you know, I had three biological children and figured I we were doing a pretty good job raising them, then took in a relative eight-year-old child. And, you know, we didn't know anything about FASD at the time, and we didn't know anything about trauma either. And definitely trauma was a part of the picture. Um, and all of these years later, and now our daughter, um, this particular daughter is 31, um, it's just been the past few years when the kind of like the light bulb went off as I was, as I've been learning and sharing about FASD and the, the symptoms, the characteristics, it's like, wait a minute, you know, I think, you know, in all of those years of parenting her, I kept trying to fit, you know, that round peg into that square hole, like it, making those expectations and setting them like I did, you know, my neurotypical children, um, you know, the same expectations, the same disciplines, the same consequences, the same everything, but she couldn't, right, perform like that, but as a Christian and very like, you know, well, she's not following the rules, she's disobedient, she's rebellious, she, you know, all of those things. She's she's um, oppositional, all of those things that you that you think, you're right, we have to correct this this behavior. She's choosing to behave this way. This is, you know, sin and she has to learn. So but now I know that wasn't the case at all. It wasn't that she wasn't doing what I wanted her to do or she wasn't doing what I didn't want her to do, it was that she couldn't. And it's it's definitely a game changer when you begin to understand the brain. Um, powerful, powerful, I've learned so much. And most of our listeners on this podcast are adoptive, foster and kinship caregivers like you and I. Um, prenatal exposure to alcohol is really rampant in this population of children that we care for, yet uh, it's so often undiagnosed or misdiagnosed. So Suzanne, would you share with us so that our listeners can learn and and, and really maybe the light bulb will go off for them too, like it did me, um, share those primary characteristics of FASD. Right. So one part of the neural behavioral model is looking at, like we've just said, behaviors differently. We can actually categorize behaviors into um, primary characteristics and then secondary and tertiary symptoms. And primary characteristics are those behaviors that are directly linked to brain function. Um, They also include our strengths and interests and the way we learn. So um, with the the facets has an exploration tool that we use to look at these um, primary characteristics. And there are nine different areas that are considered primary characteristics. This is not exhaustive list. It's just the most common ones we see with people with fetal alcohol and and some other invisible brain based conditions. And they have to do with um, developmental level of functioning really in all of these areas. Um, The first one would be like social skills and adaptive behaviors. Um, We also look at sensory systems, um, nutrition, language and communication, processing pace, learning and memory, abstract thinking, executive functioning, And then, um, like I mentioned, all the strengths and interests and the way a person learns, those are like the the categories of um, the primary characteristics that we would consider behaviors that are directly linked to brain function. 
Excellent. And then if those symptoms uh, or characteristics are not recognized uh, and like what I had done for years, parents and caregivers set our expectations and use parenting styles um, that only work with neurotypical kids, uh, then we can often see the secondary characteristics of FASD. So would you share some of those with us? Right. So secondary behavioral symptoms occur and they would, they would um, appear in any of us who live under chronic stress and frustration with um, either people or in an environment expecting things of us that we simply can't do. So these are normal defensive behaviors to pain, really. And um, there's a lot of them, but some of them would be things like getting easily tired, fatigued, um, which can sometimes look like overactivity or irritability, um, anxiety, being lonely, isolated, shut down, fearful, um, depression, being um, easily frustrated, um, temper tantrums, kind of anger um, outbursts, um, sometimes self-harming behaviors, <clears throat> being avoidant, running away, um, aggressive, destructive, disruptive, sometimes talking back, like argumentative, those would all be um, some of the secondary characteristics that we might see when somebody is under living under chronic stress and frustration. Because they, they have the, the brain-based disability and then we're trying to force them to do things they possibly, they, they really cannot do, which leads to greater frustration and isolation and all of those things that you mentioned, um, which makes total sense when you start learning about this, right? Um, during the six weeks, uh, six week, six week facets training that you led, I can still hear your voice in my head <laughs> when you would you, you have that line. What does my child's brain have to do in order to perform the task I'm expecting or asking them to do? Right. Um, you, you use that phrase a lot and it stuck with me. Uh, and, and there have been times when I've stopped myself even because my son will do something or one of my sons will do something and I'll, and I'll you know, I, I stop and I hear your voice <laughs> and I think, wait a minute. You know, I'm I I know he can't do what I'm asking or what I'm expecting. So, can you explain why we need to ask ourselves that question and how, once we understand brain-based parenting, it really can be a game changer? Yeah, right. It is really important, and it is also the question that um, most of us have never been taught to learn. Right? We don't. You, most of us didn't grow up. Um, thinking much about our brains in the first place, let alone linking behaviors with brain function. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, for any, um, for any given task or expectation that we might have of a child or anybody of any age, um, it is key to ask that question, what does a person's brain have to be able to do to accomplish whatever it is that our expectation is, right? Because if what we're expecting requires brain functions that the person has difficulty with, there will always be problems because it's like asking the child that can't see to read the blackboard, right? Or asking a child that can't walk, that's in a wheelchair to get up and walk. It simply is not going to happen. So that question really, and it doesn't have to be complicated, although it can take some work to, to um, start understanding, you know, for any given task, like what is it, you know, that the brain has to be able to do? Like in conversation, right? Having a back and forth conversation, a person has to be able to have a pretty quick processing speed because I have to be able to hear what this person is saying. And then I have to be thinking myself, like, how do I want to respond and respond really quickly? Because most of us don't, like we ask a question and we don't wait 10 minutes, right? For the answer, <clears throat> we expect this immediate response. Um, so just that question, like Sandra, you were just saying in your parenting can totally then change. Oh, you know, that person has difficulty with this and this. That means they're not going to be able to do what I just asked them to do, at least maybe in the way that I'm asking it. And so then 
um, it becomes a different question, right? Or a different approach instead of the like punishment or consequence, um, we're gonna go down a road of, okay, their brain has difficulty with that and some other questions along the way. So, um, you know, how can I approach this situation differently? That might be a better fit with their abilities. It's like I said, it's a game changer once you understand that. Um, the neurobehavioral model is based on parenting differently by recognizing our children's or child's brain differences and preventing problems instead of punishing our kids for things, right? Um, so I'd like to talk about making accommodations because that's a big one um, with this, um, kind of making accommodations and then identifying our kids' strengths and talents. Um, so let's start with accommodations first. Give us some examples of how making accommodations, how would that work? What would that look like? Right. Well, um, it's endless, right? Because every person is different and what will work for one person may not work for another person. Um, the beautiful thing about the neural behavioral model is that it totally opens up um, an endless amount of options that we might have to exactly accommodate or to respond differently in any given situation. So for example, um, for example, my son who is on the fetal alcohol academics on the fetal alcohol spectrum, um, academics has always been his hardest area. He has a really hard time with both reading and math and you know, sitting in a classroom, the typical classroom experience, right? Um, and so, you know, for a long time, I, I thought, you know, this is what he needed to do. He had to be in school. We have an idea that, you know, for anybody to be successful, they have to go through this academic path, right, of graduating from high school. And many of us think our kids need to go on to college and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and um, right now, um, I know that my son learns better hands-on, hands-on learning, not sitting and writing and listening and that that kind of dynamic so um we actually he's still um, working on finishing high school he just got into an auto tech program um which every other day he gets to go and it's all hands-on learning he's learning how to do all kinds of things right with cars and it's the first time in his life that i've actually seen him excited about school he comes mm. home and he tells me i learned how to change oil today i learned how to do breaks today and he's getting high school credit and it's enough that it's every other day then the other day he does go to school um he has a modified he's getting a modified diploma so he has lots of accommodations even in the, the regular classroom but it makes all the difference exact for example for him for for probably being able to finish high school versus just not even finishing, right? Which sometimes that's the appropriate choice too. It just depends on on the person. Um, but it really helps making the accommodations um, helps a person settle and use their gifts and talents in that situation using the hands-on learning that I know my son, that's the way he learns. So figuring out how can we make learning hands-on in that in that example. Um, there's so many different stories of, um, you know, ways to accommodate. When he was little, um, and this is a common dynamic with small children, you know, we usually use time a lot of times. Like we tell them, you know, you have 15 minutes and you need to come in and then, you know, 10 minutes and you need to come in five minutes. Well, it didn't matter how many times, how many warnings I gave him it was always a huge fiasco to get him to come inside for dinner, right? And after I started learning the neurobehavioral model, another important thing is to include the person in our plans, right? Like, this is what I'm observing, obviously, depending on the age and the ability, but, you know, what do you, what do you think would help? This is what, it, this is the scenario. Um, you know, I need you to come in for dinner and you have a hard time. What do you think would help? And Edwin, I mean, at that point, he was probably eight or nine. He said, Mom, he said, what would really help me is if you could make a big sign that had 
like a hand, like gesturing for me to come to you. (laughs) And so I looked like a complete idiot, right? I made this huge sign with this hand and I'd stand out in the middle of the road and show it to him. And sure enough, I didn't have to say anything except for his name to get it, draw his attention. He would look at that sign and he would come in because he's more visual, right? Than, than Mm. auditory. And um, that worked for a long time. It didn't work for forever. And these things do, right? We have to kind of, um, they grow and mature and change just like we do. And so these accommodations and strategies also will evolve. Um, But those are just a couple examples of different ways to accommodate and that it, it can make all the difference in their ability to feel good about themselves and be able to respond and be successful in life. Yeah, I love that. And I have seen where accommodations, uh, and and I I so wish I knew this and understood it years ago, um, because I'm a a mom of five adopted children. Not all of them have FASD, but two of them are diagnosed and two probably maybe would have gotten or should have gotten diagnosed had I understood, you know, what what I was dealing with. It was the youngest two that it was clear that that was the case. But but learning accommodations and and, and, and setting that up so that they can be successful and they can learn. And um, it really is. It really is a game changer. Strengths are areas of interest and talents that often stand out in people with FASD. I know you said your son is hands-on and is very interested in automotive things. One of mine um, did welding. He he's he he could do, you know, he was the build the Legos, make things out of wood, build something outside. Every time I turn around, he's got a new thing he's building, um, which is great. You know, he's working for. Um, my husband, his dad, who does construction, so he's you know able to do that. But then my other son, who's 16, he doesn't even like to hold a pencil, right? He hated Legos, does not want to draw, paint, color, anything. He's not tactile like that at all. I have no idea what, you know, his, one of his strengths is he's physically strong. He's built like an athlete. So we're looking for ways now that we can utilize that as a strength. But Suzanne, would you share some examples of strengths and how we can encourage our children to explore or um, how we can help them explore those interests so that they can experience some success and, and thrive? So just like any person, um, people prenatally exposed to alcohol um, always have amazing strengths, abilities, interests, certain learning styles. Um, But we also know that in general, um, there are some pretty common um, interests and strengths that this population um, has. They tend to be very creative um often artistic musical mechanical athletic um they tend to have really sensitive hearts they can be super compassionate when they are in a settled um place um can be very generous outgoing friendly determined which can be used in a in a good way right they often are pleasers they want to please um some are really good with like younger children with animals um being outside um i mean there's that's just a very abbreviated little list of many i mean everybody's different right and we know in general as well that it's pretty common that people on the fetal alcohol spectrum and other invisible brain-based conditions tend to learn best in relationship and Um, one-on-one. Usually the smaller the group um, and ideally one-on-one is how they learn best, but just like all of us, right? Some are more visual, some more auditory. Again, very common that they're kind of hands-on, kinesthetic, multimodal, using all their senses um, kind of learners. So another story that I love is... um, is a young girl who um, her parents did not know she had fetal alcohol till she was um, in high school, till she was about 16 years old. And she did okay as a young child. And as she got to be about third, fourth grade, academics started getting more difficult for her and she started struggling socially. And when she was about 16 was when she was diagnosed with fetal alcohol syndrome. 
And um, her parents knew that she loved cats. Cats were her passion. And so they actually made the decision not to continue to have her go to high school. She didn't finish high school, but they um, they helped her create her own cat sitting business. And as far as I know, today she's in her 30s. She's married. She has a child and she has her own cat sitting business and she loves it and she helps support her family with that and she's doing really well so it's um these that's one example of a beautiful story of using somebody's passion and strength and interest um to be successful in a very what we would probably say non-traditional what a lot of us think is success right and and she's happy and doing doing really well Oh, I love that story. I know we're still trying to figure out my, my younger son who's 16. So he, he's not hands-on at all, um, but he loves the Lord and he loves to worship. And he's announces, you know, lately he's talking about he's gonna become a pastor. Uh, he's gonna move to Texas and he's gonna have a church of 30,000 people. And well, the church that size, you're going to take in a huge offering and he's going to buy a Lamborghini. So I think we have to work on, you know, his theology and really understanding what it means to be <laughs> to pastor a church. But it's like, OK, somewhere in there, I have to find the strengths that are <laughs> going to help him. Yeah. But it's yeah, <laughs> that's a very that's a very fun story. And that that's a, a, a fun illustration to Sandra of um you know, a lot of these people, not only kids, um, developmentally, they're often younger than their chronological yes. age, and they continue to kind of sometimes not understand the difference between fantasy and reality. And um, so it can be frustrating, but it can also be really fun because they yeah. have amazing ideas and who knows, right? I mean, some of these ideas could fly. Um, but they're, they're entertaining and fun, fun, beautiful people. Yeah. Yeah. We love them, you know, but it's like, okay, obviously there's a little bit of, you know, not that, that lacking the comprehension to understand that that's not how it works, you know? So, and, and keeping in mind the dismaturity, you know, I mean, uh, there was a few years ago, um, he kept talking about he needed to buy an electric bicycle. And oftentimes what would work is if he asked for some kind of crazy expensive thing, I, I, you know, it would be like, okay, sure, for your birthday. And then, you know, by the time the birthday rolled around, he would have forgotten that and onto something else. Um, and then one morning after he left for school, I was working at my laptop and my phone was giving me alerts. And apparently I had placed an order at 3 a.m. for something on Amazon. And I thought, gosh, I don't think so. And I looked and apparently I had ordered, you know, a $2,600 electric bicycle. And I didn't even like, he doesn't have access to that to the internet and things like that. But he had gotten up in the middle of the night and, and gotten my laptop and figured out how to do it. Now there's a password on my laptop. So he can never do it. But I was like, how did you figure out how to do that? But I waited till he got home from school and kind of like, is there anything you need to tell me? You know, no, I had a good day. You know, so finally I I said something like, well, you know, Jesus knows everything that we do. Are you sure? He goes, well, I ordered my electric bike and it's going to come on Tuesday or no, maybe it's going to come on Thursday. Well, either way, it's coming. And, and, I, and then I stopped him and I said, well, it's not coming because I canceled it. And he said, well, now, how am I supposed to go preach the gospel? You know, to which I answered, I don't know, you can walk like Jesus did. I <laughs> but there was no connection like that. You know, you really like there was no and, you know, I canceled it and we had a good laugh about it and I put a password on my computer. So now he, you know, isn't going to get into that kind of trouble. But, you know, I, I we didn't there was no consequence there because he there was no connection to why that might have been wrong yeah. um we just have to kind of you know putting the password on my computer was an accommodation to help him to not get into that kind of trouble but um never a dull moment with our kids right and we can laugh about it now and i've told that story to people and they've said to me well did you let him keep the bike and i'm like no i didn't <laughs> let him keep the bike 
So it's Aww. it's an adventure for all yeah. of us, for sure. And we're either laughing or we're crying, one or the other, right? Um, I learned so much and highly recommend um, the FACETS training. Um, so um, that introductory training, that six-week training for parents um, and professionals, uh, you were the facilitator for the, the one that I took. So Suzanne, would you explain how that training works and how our listeners could possibly sign up for one of those trainings if they were interested? Right. So through FACETS, there's a lot of different um, opportunities for trainings. As Sandra was saying, the one she took really was born out of COVID. We used to only do face-to-face trainings, but probably the most popular um, training for parents is the six-week webinar, which is two hours a week for six weeks or 12 hours. And um, those are happening all the time. You can go to FACET's website, which is www.fascets.org to um, see the dates of those and to sign up for those. Um, There's also trainings of all different lengths, both for groups as well as individuals um, that, you know, kind of introductory all the way up to all of the information, which is really 21 hours. And that's what Sandra was referring to at the beginning when a parent has gone through the 12 week and they want to go on to become a facilitator of this material. So be able to train others. That's a whole um, one year kind of more intensive. And you have to have um, the whole 21 hour training to do that. So you're just missing um, about eight hours or so um, when you do the six week webinar. So those are all um, opportunities for training. I um, I also do um, support group work for parents and I do um, training one-on-one for people who want that um, through, not through facets, but through my own project. Um, so there's lots of opportunities to be trained with within the amount of time and energy that, that one has. And we'll make sure that we put links to the FACETS website so our listeners can find that. And now let's talk about the program that you cre- you created called Created to be Free. Tell us about that and how our listeners could, could contact you if they wanted the one-on-one or the group, the support group kind of training. Right. So um, the, uh, as I was sharing with you earlier, I lived in Costa Rica, um, was a full-term full-time missionary there for many years. And so I initially started this work in Spanish. We actually translated all the facets material into Spanish. And the English name for that ministry is Created to be Free, Hope for Families Affected by Alcohol. Um, So that is actually a project. I'm still a full-time missionary under the United World Mission. And that is still the project that I created and I'm a part of that takes the facets material and kind of applies it to a faith-based community. Um, And um, yeah, it's there that I do, like I said, the um, trainings of all different kinds and consultation one-on-one and support um, for families. And um, that website, unfortunately, it's, it's only in Spanish and I'm still getting it translated into English. So um, I'll let Sandra, um, wherever it's appropriate, to contact me personally. You can use my my personal Gmail. Um, um, That's probably the easiest, my personal um, email to get in contact with me for that particular ministry at the moment till we get that website up in English. Yeah. Wonderful. So I'll let our listeners contact me if they want to contact you and I can put them in contact with you so that they can learn more about that. I think that that is um, a wonderful, wonderful resource. And it's everywhere, right? I'm, I'm on, you're, you're on the West Coast, I'm on the East Coast, I'm in upstate New York, and there's nothing, really nothing for families locally here. There might be a little something down in New York City. I know out in Rochester, um, you know, there, there's some resources, but in the middle of the state, in the capital region, there's, there's nothing specifically for families affected by fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So um, we're looking to, to provide those resources here as well. Um, 
And I learned so much and highly recommend the facets training. Um, like I said, we'll put links in everything uh, in our show notes, links to everything so that our listeners can learn more. So as we wrap up, Suzanne, knowing that our listeners are primarily foster adoptive and kinship caregivers, and since you're an adoptive mom as well, you're familiar with the challenges of this journey. What is on your heart that you would really like our listeners to hear as we close? Yeah, I think I would just say that I know personally how difficult the path can be. Um, I think parenting children on a neurobehavioral spectrum can often be scary. It can bring out things we didn't know were inside of us. And what I have really found is that um, I tell my children, especially my son, um, that is um, greatly affected by fetal alcohol, that he is my greatest teacher on earth, that he has helped me become a better human being that he has opened up a whole world, get gotten me out of a lot of my boxes. And I am much more understanding and compassionate. And um, and I see the world in a totally different light. He actually, I mean, having him in my life changed my ministry and my focus and my passion. And um, so I guess I would just wanna encourage everyone that no matter how dark, the situation can feel at times that there is hope. And this model, um, I tell the founder or the creator, Diane, that um, I believe this model came out right out of God's heart, that it's the Mm. way he sees each one of us. And I have found time and time again that God uses the neurobehavioral model to bring about healing and transformation and restore relationships and um, instead of just kind of surviving and getting through um, with somebody in our family on the fetal alcohol or another um, with another neurobehavioral condition, I have found that not only in my life, but in many people's lives that I work with, they actually come to the place of celebrating that person and realizing what a gift they are to us, to our family, to the world, and how much we need them. Maybe we think that they needed us, but we need them as much as they need us to be the people that God has wants us to be and go through the process of being um, knowing the depths of our hearts and how much God loves us um, so that we can love those around us um, with that beautiful, unconditional, accepting love that celebrates who each of us is. I love that. I love that. So Suzanne, thank you so much for sharing your story and your FASD expertise with us. Um, I know I continue to learn so much from you. Looking forward to my year-long training to become a facilitator. Um, I know our listeners will be so inspired and encouraged by uh, your story as well. So thank you so much for being on the show today. You are so welcome, Sandra. It's my joy and privilege. And thank you for listening. I I know that you had to be so inspired by listening to Suzanne. Uh, We will include the links to facets. um, And if you're interested in reaching out to Suzanne for more of a support group, one-on-one kind of session or sessions, you can um, contact us at justicefororphansny.org or you can contact me by my email, sandraflackjfo at gmail.com and I will put you in contact directly with Suzanne, uh, unless, of course, you speak uh, Spanish and you can find her website uh, created to be free. Uh, and then you can go right to her website until and until then we have to if you're if you need it in English, you're going to have to reach out to me and, and I'll get you in contact with Suzanne. Um, and you'll just check out the show notes for the links that you need. Um It's excellent FASD training. So I hope that if you feel that this, you know, alcohol touches uh, your family, your kids, that this is something that you are dealing with. And if you are a foster adoptive or kinship caregiver, it's highly likely that you are, um, you know, please uh, feel, feel, 
free to reach out and let us know that you need that support, that you need some help along the way. That's what we are here for. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe um, to Orphans No More. That lets us know that you are listening, that you are enjoying the show. Um, and again, you can reach out directly to me by email um, if you have questions or um you know, want to schedule a call, that kind of thing. Um, Really, I'm here for you on the same journey. And we do need, like Suzanne said, to support one another. So you can check out my family's kinship and adoption story in my book, Orphans No More, A Journey Back to the Father. It's available wherever you buy books. If you grab one from Amazon, please go back in there and leave a review after you've read it. I am so excited to be up to 57 reviews. Most of them are like five-star reviews, but 57 reviews. My original goal was 50 reviews. I'm thrilled to find 57 on there. Um, you know, now I would love to try to reach 100 reviews. So please, if you if you have read the book, go back in there and leave a review. I greatly appreciate that. If you haven't read it yet and you would actually like a signed copy, um, I'll sign a copy and pop it in the mail to you myself, including a special uh, bookmark that that we created to go with it, you can order from my website, sandraflack.com. There you'll also learn more about me. You can read my blog, which is really, um, you know, messages for foster adoptive and kinship parents. You can contact me about speaking opportunities. I would love to come to your um, adoptive foster care um, support group. If you're doing a conference or a retreat, um, I'm here for for, for you for those things. So feel free to reach out. I'm booking speaking opportunities in person and virtual. So you can find me at sandraflack.com. Um, I'd also like to give a shout out to our Care Portal County sponsors. This is through our Ministry of Justice for Orphans. Care Portal is a program uh, that we lead um, and it is really providing help and support for families, children and families in crisis. And um, our, our county sponsors, Tri Nuclear Corporation, Bishop Boundary Construction, and National Bank of Cooksaki, these businesses care care about children and families in crisis, and they support our ministry and help us do what we do. Things like providing um, the care portal, providing this podcast. Um, so I just want to give a big thanks to them. Don't forget to uh, to check out our website, justicefororphansny.org, um, where you can now check out our FASD resources and other training. Um, you can learn more about the care portal. We are in the process of updating our website um, just to make it more current. It's been a few years. So we really want to make sure that we really focus on exactly what we know that you need. So that will be happening, but you can still go there and get the information that you need. Uh, Follow Justice for Orphans on both Facebook and Instagram. I also am on Facebook and Instagram. Um, Just search for me, Sandra Flack. Uh, My Instagram is Sandra Flack underscore JFO. Would love to connect with you. Love to hear from you. I am grateful that you spent your valuable time with me today, and I'm thrilled to have you along for the journey. Thank you for listening to Orphans No More, for sharing what you've heard and praying for vulnerable children everywhere. We hope you are inspired to walk out James 127 in whatever way God calls you. For more information, visit justicefororphansny.org.